Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are covering Carl Edward Wagner's 1974 classic story, Sticks. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. This story was commissioned by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. And in fact, it is the last story in a series that's actually been a huge amount of fun for us. So I want to say, well, thanks, I guess, for the financial support, but also and especially thanks for the impetus to read stories that we would not otherwise have done. I think you just hinted at your experience with Carl Edward Wagner there, Brandon. That is something we'll take up in the discussion segment for sure. Yeah, I really loved this story. It was right up my alley. So thanks. Yeah, again, I wouldn't have come across this, I think, any other way. And I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, this story is very cool. It is Lovecraftian. It's a it's a Lovecraftian story in the truest sense of that, I think is the way to put it. And and what I mean by that is that the story is not so much taking its cue from Lovecraft, so much as the story is a kind of love letter to Lovecraft. I don't think that Styx is quite pastiche because Wagner's not imitating Lovecraft's prose style, though there are, I think, some stylistic homages for sure. But it is something still maybe close to pastiche. It's imagining a story, I think, that Lovecraft might have written if Lovecraft had lived longer. And I just totally loved it. So I'm I'm eager to get into it, Brandon. Well, let's just get started with the recap then. Styx opens in the spring of 1942. Colin Leverett is an artist, and he's hiking in the woods in upstate New York, uh, the Ostalic Valley, with some fishing gear, hoping to find a good fishing hole. He's been drafted to fight in the war, and he just wants one final, nice, relaxing day or two in the woods. It's not long that Colin's in the woods before he sees some sticks lashed together in strange ways near the stream. Uh, And at first, he just thinks that these sticks are marking a cairn. But as Colin continues to follow the stream, that's called Man Brook, he finds himself on what at one point must have been private property. What he's done is follow an old railway track near the stream all the way to a no trespassing sign. And then he keeps going. And pretty soon, he's overwhelmed by the number of lashed together little stick lattices. And he also sees some stones laid out on the ground as if they're meant to display the floor plans of a house. But the stone layout is more maze-like than a typical house would be. And all of this is really unsettling. But the most unsettling thing is really the, the number of stick lattices and the variety of ways in which they are shaped or lashed together. And so Leverett feels like everything is just really off. So he does what any artist would do, I guess, and he starts drawing all these stick (laughs) lattices. Uh, There might be something there, he thinks, in the lattice designs that could one day inform his own work. Eventually, Leverett comes across an abandoned colonial-style farmhouse. It's in very bad condition, but the foundation is really strong. And I want to read this passage about the house and the property it sits on. Because I think it's a great example of Wagner's descriptive writing. So here we go. The house was nearly swallowed up by undergrowth and rampant lilac bushes. But Leverett could distinguish what had been a lawn with imposing shade trees. 
Farther back were gnarled and sickly apple trees and an overgrown garden where a few lost flowers still bloomed, wan and serpentine from years in the wild. The stick lattices were everywhere, the lawn, the trees. Even the house were covered with the uncanny structures. They reminded Leverett of a hundred misshapen spider webs, grouped so closely together as to almost ensnare the entire house and clearing. Wondering, he sketched page on page of them as he cautiously approached the abandoned house. Well, as you might guess from that last sentence there, Leverett does go inside the house and He's really into this adventure that he's <laughs> found himself on because his artwork, we're told, really veers into the macabre and scenes like this are totally his jam. There's nearly nothing in the house save for many, many of these stick lattices and then also drawings of the lattices that are all over the place and, and written on the walls. And, and Leverett just simply cannot stop sketching these things. They remind him of cuneiform glyphics, and they're just uh, uncanny. As he explores the house, Leverett comes to a doorway that leads down to the cellar. And so he descends some really dangerous stairs to find that the cellar is larger than the footprint of the floors above it, as far as he can tell. Like, the house was built atop some larger pre-existing structure. The foundation appears to have been built out of nice rock, and the masonry or building technique of the foundation walls uh, look to Leverett as though they were Mycenaean in design. So, yeah, it's unsettling. But even more unsettling is the fact that there's a large stone table in the room. The stone surface of the table has a groove along its edge. And as Leverett runs his hand across the table, he feels something cold and leathery and yielding. Something then grabs his hand just as some sunlight breaks into the room and Leverett now sees that what has a hold of him is a lich, a skeletal dead man whose eyes are bright with life. Leverett reaches around the floor with his free hand, uh, which finds an iron skillet laying on the ground. And he grabs the skillet. Uh, he bops the lich in the head with it pretty good. And then he jets <laughs> out of there as he hears the lich's footsteps closing in behind him. And that's the end of chapter one. Yeah. Something we, we should say right up front, I guess, is that this story is organized into chapters. There are, are nine of them. That's always convenient, <laughs> convenient way for us to organize <laughs> our, our back and forth here. So that's, that's how we'll go about it. Yeah. A lot of this, uh, this, part of, of the story feels a little bit like it's inspired the Blair Witch Project, which uh, is, is is awesome in itself, has made me want to revisit that story for sure. But yeah, this is this is very cool. I mean, I, I said at the beginning that Styx is a love letter to H.P. Lovecraft. We see that right away. Our protagonist is an artist who is interested in the macabre. Uh, that is straight out of Lovecraft's story, Pickman's Model. Our protagonist is also a dude who is a complete loner and... Uh, well, that is straight out of almost every Lovecraft story. That's like the whole <laughs> oof right there. The setting is in upstate New York, which is not quite New England, but actually even Lovecraft used upstate New York in The Picture in the House and The Lurking Fear. And I do think that The Lurking Fear is actually what Wagner has in mind here in this story. And also very much like Lovecraft, 
Wagner is really interested in the history of the, the, the region, like regional history of the United States, and especially interested in the material remains of previous generations of Americans. Now, for Lovecraft, that was the colonial period, which he just worshipped, I think is probably the right word to use. But, you know, Wagner's more or less contemporary to us, uh, you know, in, in the sense of post-World War II anyway. So he's looking back to the 19th century here in this story, though he is also very clearly giving us hints of something far older, which is very cool when he invokes the idea that the foundations of this house appeared Mycenaean, which means prehistoric Greece, right? The Greece of the Iliad and the Odyssey, which is also something that Lovecraft loved to do, though I think we have really only encountered that on the show in his story, The Festival, so far. But it's it's a very, very cool detail. And Wagner also shows just a tremendous love of place here in this chapter. The nature writing, it's not quite Jack London or James Fenimore Cooper, but I do think it still really, really evokes the setting. Wagner has the the flora right for this region, and I especially loved the the passage that you read into the microphone, Brandon. This description of the house as swallowed up by rampant lilac bushes is just awesome. It's so evocative. But I also really, really love the description of the ruined railway infrastructure. You know, I live on the East Coast now. I've done a fair bit of hiking in upstate New York, not specifically this area, but I have hiked in upstate New York a bunch, and I've seen exactly this sort of thing. And I will say, it is creepy. It's it's creepy to encounter, but it's creepy in a way that is completely different from backpacking alone in the Pacific Northwest, for example, which is also creepy, I will say. But the point is that Wagner really, I think, nails the specific type of creepiness that you get in the wilderness in this region. So well done. The description of the house is also great. Very Lovecraftian. Wagner is sure to point out that the house has a gambrel roof, which is absolutely one of Lovecraft's favorite phrases. It shows up basically any time he is writing about the northeastern United States to the extent that I think of gambrel as just as much of a Lovecraftian word as I do like cyclopean or non-Euclidean <laughs> or certain, and I just love it. Or pre-Mycenaean, you know? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, this this writing here is what drew me into the story. Wagner's style has a feature to it that I associate with a lot of great writing or a lot of stories that I love, which is to really start by situating the character in a place. And even though the rest of the story doesn't really follow Colin through this setting, it's so strong and evocative that these little hints we get of it later on as we continue the story uh, really just come alive in ways that they otherwise wouldn't if Wagner didn't take the time to draw us into the story in this way. And it's it's a great reminder to me as you know an amateur writer that the degree to which a really strong setting can be as much of a hook for a story as these stick lattices are. And so Wagner's really firing on all cylinders here in the opening of this of this story. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and you're right that this this chapter, chapter one, is actually functioning as kind of a prologue because what we learn in chapter two is that there's actually going to be a huge interruption between the action of chapter one and then what the the core of the story is really going to be. Right. We really skip over World War II entirely. Chapter two opens by telling us that Colin Leverett comes home from war, a changed man. Uh, we learn that he'd fought in the Apennines in Italy, and it really 
left a mark on him. Uh, Leverett's aged and he's worn and gaunt looking. He's become more ascetic and isolated than he was before serving in the army. And he doesn't talk about the war with his friends or anyone really. Though what seems to haunt him most isn't the war or what he did there. It's this encounter with the man in the cellar. Uh, Leverett's convinced himself that he really didn't hurt anyone and that whoever was in the cellar with him was probably just a hermit or something. Uh, and, and, and the hit on the head with the iron skillet wasn't that bad. But still, Colin has more nightmares about this moment than he does about the war. But he's got work to do. So he gets his artist tools ready and he starts getting back to what his day job was before the war, which is illustrating pulp magazines. But this time around, things are not going so well. His art has become too dark for some of the magazine's tastes, too gruesome. Even magazines like Weird Tales find his work to be just too much. Uh, Now, Leverett does try to tone things down, but he's really not successful at that. And slowly, offers for illustration work just stop coming in. So he gets by by selling his own work, paintings and sculptures to galleries and major museums. And critics, at least, love his bizarre and abstract sculptures. I love how Wagner is inserting Leverett into the real world of American speculative fiction publishing by making him this favorite illustrator of pulp magazines, including Weird Tales. Uh, That's that's just brilliant. But I I also love that he's too weird for Weird Tales now that he has had a real (laughs) encounter with the supernatural. I think that's a great touch as well, and maybe even kind of a dig at this business re- reflecting on Lovecraft, Lovecraft's early demise, the extent to which he was unappreciated in his own lifetime. I think that there's some some subtext uh, about that here for sure. Now, we aren't really going to return to Leffert's experiences in the Second World War in this story, but I really do find it interesting that Wagner settled on having him participate in the Italian campaign rather than in the invasion of France, because In our stories, our pop culture stories, I mean, about the European theater of the Second World War, we really romanticize uh, D-Day and the Battle of the Bulge and the French Resistance, and then we tend to forget about the rest of that theater, uh, for one, including the entire Soviet experience of the war, but also the Mediterranean theater as well. And person for person, the Italian campaign was more deadly for Americans uh, and and the British as well than the invasion of France was, also the push into Germany after that invasion. It also took a lot longer. The war in Italy continued until the very end. Uh, The German forces in Italy surrendered only about a week before Germany proper did, but the Allied invasion of Sicily occurred in the summer of 1943, and then the invasion of mainland Italy in September of that year. So basically, the campaign began a full year before D-Day, but then continued up until the very end of the war. And the fighting in Italy was totally chaotic. Italy itself had actually surrendered shortly after the Allied invasion, but Germany then just directly annexed northern and central Italy, reinstalled Mussolini as the leader of what essentially was now a province of the German Reich. And so this also then 
turned the campaign here, the Italian campaign, into an Italian civil war as well, which added a lot of chaos to all of this. And as you said, Brandon, Wagner is invoking the Apennines here. And these mountains that run north, you know, along the spine of Italy, these were a focus of super intense fighting. Mostly this was guerrilla warfare. This campaign was also what led Walter Miller to write A Canticle for Leibowitz, which is one of the greatest anti-war novels of speculative fiction, as well as I think just one of the greatest post-apocalyptic novels of all time. And I just think in general, the experience of being in Italy in 1943, 1944, 1945 traumatized a lot of the survivors. And so I'm, I'm glad to see Wagner draw some attention to it here. You know, to be fair, he is doing it so that he can say that everyone assumed that it was this experience that traumatized Leverett, but actually it was this business with the Lich. That was even worse than some of the worst combat experience in the Second World War. That That's what Wagner is doing here. But still, I'm I'm glad to see this invoked. I really wondered if what Wagner was doing by invoking the Apennines here and the uh, battles in Italy was to show us that you know, maybe this event in the cellar was pretty bad, but what Colin has done, what Leverett has done is take all of his experiences from the war and kind of amp up this situation that he never really expects to encounter again and kind of put all of his trauma into that bucket so he never really has to to confront with the war. And that's kind of what it felt psychologically to me even though we only get a few sentences about this kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, a psychological switch that I think Colin is really up to, which is suppressing the war trauma and kind of dumping it into this other bucket. While reading this, you know, this is only the second chapter of nine. And so as I was reading through the story and just wondering, you know, what am I supposed to be paying attention to? What's going to happen here? I thought that probably the war itself and, and, and Leverett's wartime experiences were going to come back. Uh, they really they really don't, uh, which I think is fine. The story is awesome. This is a real masterpiece of a story. But I did have a strong feeling that this was going to come back in some way. And in fact, it drove me to look into Wagner's own life a little bit, you know, just seeing that this story was published in 1974, my immediate thought was, oh, this was published after Wagner himself got home from Vietnam. But but actually, that turns out not to be true. Wagner did not uh, go to Vietnam. Right. This story ultimately doesn't feel like uh, a war trauma story. Though if you do want to squint at the story a certain way and make those arguments for the transference of trauma there, I'm sure an argument could be made. I don't know how interested I am in doing that, but we'll see what the discussion has for us. Uh, Let's move on here to chapter three. So this chapter opens with another time jump. 25 years have passed and Colin is still kicking around. He gets a letter from an old friend of his from the pulp days from his days illustrating the pulp magazines. This guy's name is Prescott Brandon. And Prescott, or Scotty, owns and runs a small press himself these days. And and he's publishing mostly books in the weird fantasy genre. You know, the stuff we cover on the podcast. I'm sure if we got our hands on this back catalog, we'd Never have to look for <laughs> anything to read again. But um, the letter's greeting, the way uh, Scotty greets Leverett in the letter is this. He says, to the macabre hermit of the Midlands. And that's just a great way to uh, greet a person in a letter, I think. But this letter is a job offer for Colin to illustrate a deluxe three-volume edition of H. Kenneth Allard's horror stories. 
And Scotty wants all the stuff that Colin couldn't do 25 years ago. He wants the illustrations to be dark and ghastly. And of course, Leverett accepts the offer and he reads Allard's stories and he gets super into the project and he starts illustrating. And basically, none of Colin's drawings are too much for Scotty or for the book. In order, though, to really ramp up the sense of horror or uncanniness in the drawings, the feeling of, uh, of uncanniness, Colin decides to dig out the old notebook from Manbrook all those years ago and start adding all the stick lattices to the Allard illustrations. And by doing so, he creates the effect he really wants. The pictures that he's illustrated take on an even more sinister edge than they had before. I, I think this is the first time in everything that we have covered that we have encountered a character with with one of our names. Yeah, so, that's true. Right? Think, that, might, that might be true. I think you won something. I'm not sure what it is, but because uh, I'm, I'm buying the beer the next time we're actually yeah, together. Maybe, that's, so. we'll maybe that's what it means. <laughs> but yeah, this is great. Uh, so yeah, Lovecraft has finally arrived in the story as an actual character. I mean, he's not called that, right? But H. Kenneth Allard is H.P. Lovecraft. Gothic House is the the press that uh, you know Prescott Brandon is, is running here. But this is basically a stand-in for Arkham House, uh, and Prescott Brandon is August Durleth. Also, the style of this letter is great. The salutation that you, you read there, Brandon, this is actually how Lovecraft and his circle addressed each other in, in their letters. This then was taken up by the younger protégés in that circle, people like August Durleth and Robert Block. Uh, so all of that just really working here. I mean, it's it's a thin, thin veil, but it is it is a veil we are supposed to be able to very easily peer through, and I, I just absolutely adore what Wagner's doing here. I'll say, too, that you know, the timeline here is is perfect as well. The the 1970s, the, you know, the early 1970s were the beginning of Lovecraft's insinuation into pop culture, something that had not happened while he was alive. This story that Wagner is writing, you know, right now is a part of that process, but already that process is significantly underway to the extent that Wagner can even tell a story about how it is happening right now, about how we are getting these new editions of Lovecraft's work from Arkham House. And Wagner's telling us a story about that, and it's awesome. It is really awesome. This is maybe the only story uh, that I've read or come across, including, you know, like TV shows or film, that like actually delivers on the promise of what if Lovecraft had to go on one of his own you know, imagination journeys. You know, what if what if he had to encounter the stuff he writes about? Uh, to me, this is like, uh, for some reason, the only time I've encountered that premise that it really works. I think part of the reason why it works is because it's not actually Lovecraft, but and it works independently of knowing anything about Lovecraft. But knowing about Lovecraft in a circle really adds to the to the joy of this story. Yeah, I think I'm I'm with you here. There there are some good. Uh, 
examples of of this sort of thing, but none of them have landed for me as well as this one, and and most of them are are, are pretty bad. I mean, even you know, Alan Moore has has done this in his uh, his book Providence, which I really quite enjoyed. But uh, and we love Alan Moore here on, on Elder Side. We've done a lot of him. We're doing his uh, his Swamp Thing run right now as a bonus series on Patreon. That you know, we love Alan Moore, but yet still, I think Wagner is hitting the emotions here in a way that even a, a writer as talented as Alan Moore wasn't doing for me. So yeah, this is spectacular. Yeah, I think he captures the real spirit of Lovecraft as a person um, that you see in his correspondence and stuff that you don't see when people are trying to make Lovecraft a type of archetypal figure. And so I, I really appreciate what Wagner's doing here. Let's move on to chapter four here. So the Allard books, or at least the first volume, is ready to be published. And Scotty really loves Leverett's drawings, especially now that they have all those sticks in them. So Scotty <laughs> asks Leverett, hey, where'd you come up with that idea for all putting all those sticks in these drawings? And Colin, I guess, feels like he owes Scotty the truth. So he writes a letter to Scotty telling him all that happened on Manbrook, except for the part where he might have accidentally bludgeoned uh, a hermit to death in the Skeller. Uh, but Scotty's like, hey, I have a professor friend at Pelham, and he knows the regional history of that area, and he will really be interested in what you've just told me. So I'm going to get you guys connected. So he does. And in a week, Leverett gets a letter from Dr. Steph Roy, who really is a kind of expert in the local history and especially the folklore of upstate New York and the New England states, I think, in general. And this letter then is the way that Wagner gets to give us a bunch of exposition that is really important to this story. So firstly, Dr. Sefroy wonders if Colin can find again the abandoned house he once found so long ago. Dr. Strafoy is really interested in finding this house because based on Colin's descriptions, he's reminded of other megalithic sites that, are, that date back to the Bronze Age, uh, specifically the time period between 1700 and 2000 BC. Now, the, these megalithic sites and cultures can be traced to the Lion Gate in Mycenae, uh, Stonehenge, and there are plenty of sites like this in North America too, uh, like the Mystery Hill in New Hampshire, and that location actually includes a sacrificial table. These megalithic sites are also tied to a religious cult whose adherents worshipped a sort of earth mother for fertility rituals and sacrifices, and they believed that the immortality of the soul could be secured through internment in these megalithic tombs. Uh, so that's all a quote there for the most part. However, some of these sites were also used for darker purposes, especially in North America. You know, they were used by colonial alchemists. And that is my new band's name, by the way. I call it tips <laughs> on that. But, the, but these cultists were trying to get immortality by having their bodies interned or preserved in the stone tables, but they were waiting for the old ones to come back to bring them back to life. And, you know, it's likely that Colin found one of these weird cultist sites. Dr. Strefoy has also sent a picture of the sacrificial stone table that he mentioned in the letter 
and it matches the table that Colin saw at the farmhouse. The groove in the table, Strefway explains, was to channel the blood from the body into a bowl. So Colin is understandably unsettled by all of this, but he responds to Dr. Strefoy with gratitude for the information he's been given, and Colin promises to try to repeat his hike of yesteryear to see if he can find that old house again. This is just so awesome. I mean, it's, it's just fun. This is super fun. The idea here is that prehistoric Europeans traveled to the northern half of eastern North America around 1800 BC and established a civilization here that is is now lost to us. But because this civilization constructed megalithic ritual sites, we can still find archaeological remains of their existence. But of course, being preliterate, that is all that we have, right? There's no writing here. And there are a lot of these sites, apparently, but somehow this is still outside of the public consciousness, also not accepted by most scholars. Wagner is not interested in showing us you know, how this works or what this scholarly field is like. In fact, it's it's not even clear if Steph Roy is a scholar, much less where he is a scholar. Uh, Pelham is... The, the place that he's associated with here, that's a community right next to the Bronx. So I don't know, maybe he's a professor at Fordham or something, but he also might not be a professor anywhere. But the point is that this is very cool. It's something that Lovecraft has used himself in a, a more oblique way in some of his stories. We've encountered this in the, the festival, but it's in some stories that we haven't uh, dealt with uh, yet on the show as well. Wagner also was drawing on Margaret Murray's book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe. This is a a very famous book of pseudo-history that argues that early modern witches were practitioners of a prehistoric fertility religion. We did talk about this a little bit when we covered the festival, but in other places, Lovecraft has taken this idea and really dialed it up to 11, and that's what Wagner is, is drawing on here And so, yeah, the idea that there are 18th century, 19th century, even 20th century cults that are continuations of this religion and that that religion itself, this this prehistoric fertility religion, is a type of black magic. Uh, This shows up, I think, most famously, really, in the Dunwich horror. But here in Styx, Wagner is tying this idea to the new American religions that appeared during the First Great Awakening and, and also the Second Great Awakening, although mostly the first here, which was in the 18th century. Uh, he invokes uh, Shadrach Ireland, who's a, a real person who believed in physical immortality for people who had achieved some kind of uh, spiritual perfection. Uh, really what this immortality was, was a type of bodily resurrection. Wagner makes this weird by invoking the idea of of powers from outside, but to be clear, Ireland just thought this was God. Uh, Shadrach Ireland was a Christian, just maybe with some fringe beliefs, but he really did insist that nobody bury him when he dies so that he could be resurrected, and people actually obeyed these instructions for a while until you know, his body started to smell real bad, and then it was uh, secretly buried by his own followers. And Wagner here has also made up the the business about his corpse lying on a stone slab in the cellar. I mean, the body was in the cellar, but it was in a box, uh, and that still didn't prevent it from smelling bad after a while. 
so yeah, all of this, this is just super Lovecraftian, right? Taking these details from American colonial history, splicing them with some pseudo history, and then bringing in some, some aliens or magic or, or both. And uh, it's thrilling. It's just super fun. It's so perfectly handled. The way this story moves in and out of this epistolary mode is, it's perfect. I mean, it's perfectly handled. Uh, I am really in awe of what Wagner was able to accomplish here. I really had to resist the urge to read that whole letter uh, on air because it's it's amazing. And all these Strefoy letters are awesome. And yeah, the way that Wagner is dealing with, you know, for me, I was thinking uh, more of like the, you know, the Great Awakening or something like that. This these these times in American history that just led to an explosion of weird religious movements and combining that with prehistory and the Bronze Age and uh, dark rituals and magic and uh, colonial alchemists. It's just, it's so good. It's so good. And it's so brief. I mean, the story's only, what, 10, 15 pages long? Ah, what, what, what a treat this has been to read. Yeah, probably something that we should we should do just to call out as a, a, a parallel here between what Wagner is is doing and, and what Lovecraft has done with with real actual history of of American religions is to think about the the genesis of of Mormonism also in upstate New York that is predicated on the discovery that there had been a prehistoric. Uh, Bronze Age civilization from the old world that had come to the new world that had left some artifacts that simply hadn't been discovered yet. So this is part of you know Americana. It is part of what is happening in the 18th and 19th century. It's just Lovecraft and, and now here Wagner in this story are taking it in this weird fiction direction. It's a real delight, as we've said, but there's more to get through in this story. So chapter five uh, tells us that Colin was too busy, basically, with work to head back into the old woods until June. But once June rolls around, he heads out, but he can't find the site that he's looking for. The land has changed due to flooding and other stuff, too, I guess. But Colin has found a few of the landmarks that he had found before, Still, though, he can't find the house. He told Dr. Streffoy he tried to find. I mean, this whole opening of this chapter is basically telling us uh, Colin tried and <laughs> you know did not succeed. But he writes a letter to Dr. Streffoy that basically tells Streffoy as much. It takes a few weeks for Streffoy to respond. And when he does, the letter that he's written tells Leverett that he, Streffoy, has been out chasing leads on another megalithic site that he's heard about. Um, but still, he's disappointed that Leverett couldn't find anything at the at the Man Brooks site. Yes, he says there were a bunch of floods in the region between 1942 and 1946. And if the house was in bad as shape, as Colin described, it likely would have been destroyed by flooding in the region. But that's not chiefly what Strefoy wants to communicate in the letter. What Strefoy wants to say is he wants to offer his condolences over the death of Prescott Brandon. Scotty was murdered viciously, and the police have not found the killers. But uh, the third Allard volume looks great, and the work that Scotty did on it, uh, including hiring Colin for the illustrations, really speaks to Scotty's legacy as a publisher. Colin 
is shocked by this news. He hadn't heard about Scotty's death before getting this letter from Strefoy. And, you know, just a few days prior to getting this letter, he'd received another letter from Scotty telling him how interested the fans are, how engaged they are in the art, in the Allard volumes. The fans are particularly curious about the stick lattices. And and one man in particular, a man named uh, Major George Leonard, was maybe overly interested in getting a hold of Leverett and asked Scotty where he could find Leverett, like where he lived. Uh, Scotty told the man that he'd pass on any score, any correspondence that uh, George Leonard had for Scotty. What Leonard wanted was to see the original sketches, but Scotty tells Colin that his chief goal is to protect Colin from these occult types because these occult types can be real weird. Yeah, uh, this is all before Twitter, uh, where everybody <laughs> everybody is reachable by their by their audience now for sure. Uh, yeah, we're we're in the Call of Cthulhu territory at this point, right? Where the the secret cult is murdering people, though in this case it's it's not necessarily to keep the cult's identity a secret. It, there, there's something else going on here, which we'll you know we'll find out what that is. But yeah, this is a pretty short chapter, but it really ratchets up the tension, really raises the stakes. I was actually prepared now at this point for just a, a full-on onslaught of secret murder cultists. That, that's not where the story's going. That's not where we're going to get. But this felt like it was about to get very like pulp adventure here. Yeah, Wagner really swerves away from that. Uh, but he also leans into it in the opening of chapter six. If you're just reading this straight through, when chapter six starts, you think, uh-oh, because... A stranger comes to Leverett's house claiming that Scotty Brandon told him where Leverett could be found. And, well, we just read that letter about weird occult types trying to get information about sticks from uh, and Leverett from Scotty Brandon. This stranger, though, is driving an expensive black sports car. He's dressed in a turtleneck and leather pants, so super fashionable. Uh, he's got money. And he introduces himself to Leverett as Dana Allard, H. Kenneth Allard's nephew. Leverett is really being polite, I suppose. He invites Dana in, and Dana reveals that he and Scotty had been discussing publishing some of H. Kenneth Allard's unpublished manuscripts uh, that Dana's father had found in their attic. So H. Kenneth Allard had left these manuscripts there at some point. Dana has brought these manuscripts to Leverett's house and he shows Leverett the manuscripts and Leverett thinks they look absolutely authentic. Apparently, these unpublished pieces were written toward the end of Allard's illness and they're just more morbid than his other work. Allard even took the time to translate his mythical work, The Book of Elders, uh, with which he included illustrations of elder glyphics. And these glyphics look a lot like the stick lattices that Colin had found so many years ago and then used to illustrate these other Allard collections. But Dana didn't just come to Leverett's house to read strange words from the Book of Elders or show Colin the manuscripts. Dana wants to publish the manuscripts and he wants Leverett to illustrate what will be the final volume of Allard's work. And he's willing to pay anything Leverett wants. And 
you know, because he's being so generous, he asks if he can see the inspiration behind the stick drawings that Leverett put in the previous volumes published by Scotty. Leverett agrees. Yeah, he he can show Dana the notebook. So he goes and gets it. And uh, Dana flips through the pages and asks Leverett to use these drawings in particular for his illustrations uh, because there appears to be some overlap between what Leverett has drawn and what Al- Allard has sketched and described in this unpublished work in the translation of the Book of Elders. Yeah, so everyone is really excited, and this is how chapter six ends. Well, I think my favorite part about Dana Allard is the wardrobe. I mean, just <laughs> black leather pants, an expensive looking black turtleneck. I mean, it is the most 70s thing ever. It is hard to feel like this is an outfit that conveys wealth and like seriousness and yeah. chicness. But but boy, <laughs> there was a decade when that was true. And actually really more than a decade. I mean, I think this lingers into the 1980s even. And uh, yeah, that was, a, that was an artifact. But uh, yeah, seriously, I have to say this is such... A fanish dream here, right? Finding some lost Lovecraft stories in an attic, including some that are purporting to be translations of the Necronomicon. Uh, Wagner here is calling it the Book of Elders. I mean, this is just awesome. It is, of course, about to take a dark turn. I think you know we, we see that a dark turn has to be has to be coming in the story here. But there's a clue here, right? Because although I was totally obsessed with the turtleneck, I think that the uh, not taking off your sunglasses or gloves is definitely the more important wardrobe detail about Dana Allard. Yeah, I, I wanted to cast David Boreanaz and, you know, the combination of the season five episode where he's in World War II and maybe wearing a turtleneck, I can't remember, and uh, when he wears leather pants all the time and gets made fun of <laughs> Angel. I thought he's the guy who I'd cast as Dana uh, Allard. In this, I see. I couldn't episode. stop seeing Roddy McDowell. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a good choice, too. <laughs> Well, I gotta I gotta do chapter seven and eight together because they uh, do kind of flow into one another. And chapter seven is is an odd one. It it opens with a dream. Uh, Leverett, we're told, is floating in space, but instead of the space being populated with stars, uh, it's populated with stick lattices. And the sticks aren't made of wood. Instead, they're made of something like frozen starlight. And Leverett feels as though they're trying to communicate something to him. You know, they're a language. And then suddenly Leverett is in a tunnel. And after crawling for what feels like ages, he emerges near the stone table. Others come out of tunnels after him. And a figure in a cloak grabs his wrists, taking him to the table. Through the light of the glowing cuneiform lattices chiseled into the nice slab, Leverett sees the cloaked man's face. It's the corpse face of the lich. And upon having this vision, Leverett awakens with a scream. This dream, Leverett thinks, is the product of an overworked mind. He's completed 50 drawings for this last Allard volume called Dwellers of the Earth. And there's a lot of pressure to get these drawings done because once his art is approved, the book's ready to go to print. Wagner writes this. Though his bones ached with fatigue, Leverett determinedly trudged through the graying night. Certain features of the nightmare would be interesting to portray. So, yeah, Leverett's deep in this project. Chapter 8 opens and the artwork is done and it's out the door. The books are ready to be printed. The work 
you know, this work, as we saw in the last chapter, has had a real impact on Leverett. He's lost weight and just generally feels like crap. But there have also been setbacks on the publishing side of the business, on, on Dana's side of book production. Like, the machine doesn't seem to want to print any of the books. And Leverett actually thinks the book might be cursed. But all of it gets worked out. Dana gets everything printed finally. And now the book is ready. So Leverett's anxiously awaiting for his contributor copy of the book in the mail when he gets another letter from Dr. Steffroy. Dr. Steffroy or Streffoy, I've lost track of what I've been saying here, writes that he's <laughs> been trying to get a hold of Leverett via the telephone, but Leverett hasn't been answering. Anyway, he tells us uh, he's tracked down another megalithic site at the home of a prominent Massachusetts family. Uh, Streffoy's basically trespassed on the estate, and then he's also done a lot of research in the family who are totally part of whatever weird cult has been using stone tables for dark purposes. But the real kicker here is that as Streffoy was going through the woods around the home, he found lots of these stick lattices, and he really just wants to tell Leverett that he agrees that they are really, really creepy. More than that, he knows that these lattices have been made recently. And with that, Strefoy tells Leverett that he's off to do more investigating. Leverett really hopes that Dr. Strefoy here has stumbled onto a hoax and that Nobody is actually still making these stick lattices that he came across over a quarter of a century ago now. All right, there, there's just a little more to this chapter here. Leverett's still having nightmares. He has them all the time, and they've become familiar features of his sleep. He gets buried in a stone chamber in the forest, but he knows the way out is through a tunnel that always leads to the same underground room with the stone table or sacrificial altar. But this time, he sees a writhing man pinned to the table. Leverett wonders if he knows the man, but then there's the lich behind him, whispering to him, and Leverett takes the knife from the lich's hand, and he does with the knife as the tattered priest whispers to him to do. Leverett wakes up after a while, and he's covered in blood, and he's holding a half-devoured heart in his hand. I want to talk about these nightmares when we get to the discussion, which is rapidly approaching. So here, I will just say that the use of these nightmares here, this is a, another nod to Lovecraft. Lovecraft just loved dreams. He had really vivid dreams and claimed, at, at least, that a lot of his stories were inspired by them. Dreams appear in a lot of his stories as well. I mean, even the inciting incident of the Call of Cthulhu, at least from the perspective of some of the backstory anyway, that inciting incident is somebody having a, a bad dream. But I do think that this is often overlooked by fans. At least it's it's often overlooked by me. That's, I guess, what I'm, what I'm saying. <laughs> and uh, this really is a terrifying dream or sequence of dreams that Leverett is, is having. But I think for me, the, the real heart of these two chapters is this business with the recently made sticks, the perfectly preserved megalithic sacrificial ritual site in the basement of some rich people's house. I mean, yeah, this, this really should be screaming, get out. 
to you? I mean, it's, you know, certainly is screaming. You should be hearing it, I guess, is the advice that I'm I'm trying to give. It definitely feels like it is the house of the, the cult leader, the uh, skin of many such cult leaders who maybe owe their wealth to the, the cult or maybe the thing the cult worships or, you know, something like that, right? We've all encountered some variation of this horror story before. Some of the details, maybe lack of details is really what I mean in this letter, seem like they are meant to be allusions to something specific in Lovecraft, but I'm, I'm actually not sure what they are. I, I feel like we're supposed to know which Massachusetts family he's talking about and which divinity school Steffroy's talking about here, but I actually couldn't recall anything. I'm, I'm not sure that you will either, Brandon. So I hope that listeners will let us know what what illusion this is, because I feel like it definitely is one. I just can't put my finger on it. Well, whether or not it, it is an illusion, and you're right uh, to say that I, I have no grounds with which to <laughs> make a guess here. Uh, it, you know what it feels like to me? It feels like the scene in the Ninth Gate where Johnny Depp is kind of poking his head in the windows of the, the house where the, the cult is finally getting up to their devil worship. And uh, I don't think Dr. Steph Roy is as cool as Johnny Depp is in that movie. I mean, he's he's no book detective, but it certainly <laughs> feels like that's something that's that's going on. We've really just started fan casting this story, I think, at this point. <laughs> we really have. I mean, it, it, I, I know this story, uh, you know, it came out in the 70s, but it, it feels like it has to be an inspiration for so much of, you know, horror or anything dealing with cults that came after it. It feels like it really codified what you need to do, at least in the in the visual medium. medium. Uh, you know, like all the people who were making these types of movies in the 90s had read this story in the 70s as kids or teenagers, and it stuck with them. No, I, I completely agree with that. That's exactly what it feels like. I mean, I, I invoked the Blair Witch Project like an hour ago. I mean, it was a, a dumb joke, but I think it's probably true. I think yeah, it's probably, no, it's absolutely. True. Yeah, it, it's got to be. All right, well, let's finish the story before we talk about 90s uh, pseudo-horror movies <laughs> or fat footage movies anymore. We're at the last chapter here. Uh, you know, We finished off with Leverett holding a half-devoured heart in his hand. We wonder if that's true. Leverett certainly does. He feels like he's gone insane. You know, we're told that he gets rid of the, quote, shredded lump of flesh and then showers until his skin is scoured raw. And as he's kind of going about his day, I suppose he hears on the radio about the death of Dr. Strifoy, who was crushed by a giant stone during an excavation. And this bit of news really pushes Leverett over the edge. He flees his home and and rushes to Dana Allard's home in Petersham. Uh, Allard's home is an old stone home, and Dana opens the door to Leverett's frantic knocking. Leverett tells Allard that they've got to destroy the books. The lattices mean something to the cult, and they're killing people who investigate or expose them. They killed Scotty, they killed Dr. Strefoy, and now they're coming after Leverett, and they'll come after Dana for publishing this book, too. Dana tries to calm Leverett down. You know, there's nothing weird going on with the books. In fact, you know, they're back from the printer and Dana has them all in his cellar and he can even show them to Leverett to show how big a deal this isn't. So the men go down to the cellar where Colin sees the bundles of books ready to go to the distributor. Dana grabs a book that he signed for Leverett and he gives it to him. Leverett is understandably freaked out by all the pictures that he's drawn of the stick lattices. And 
And Dana answers an unasked question here at this point. He says that, yeah, uh, these actually are elder glyphics that you came across. So that's kind of like weird and out of place feeling. But then Leverett reads the inscription left for him by Allard. It says, for Colin Leverett, without whom this work could not have seen completion. Signed, H. Kenneth Allard. Now Allard is speaking again, and Leverett looks more closely at him and sees places where Allard's makeup failed to conceal the face beneath. The glyphics, Allard explains, are from an alien dimension. They are inexplicable to the human mind, but they have vast power. And the ritual has been tried before, once before. But the iron weapon wielded by Colin Leverett destroyed part of Althol's brain. It was the advance of the Iron Age that drove Althol into hiding four millennia ago in the first place. But not now. Colin is back and he had kept notes on all of Althol's symbols and he turned them into art that thousands of people will now see effectively performing the evocation so that the old ones will rise again and the dead who have served them will become the masters of the living. And here's the last lines of the story. Leverett turned to run, but now they were creeping forth from the shadows of the cellar as a massive flagstone slid back to reveal the tunnels beyond. He began to scream as Althol came to lead him away, but he could not awaken. He could only follow. And that's the end of the story. The, the moral of the story is don't meet your heroes because they're, they're probably part of a secret lich cult. So that's, yeah, that's that, good advice. That's one moral. Yeah. Never yeah, meet yeah. your heroes, I think, is a, is a pretty common, pretty common moral <laughs> out there. Uh, investigating old colonial houses also, uh, you know, it's dangerous whether or not you end up being uh, pulled into a, a sacrificial old one's cult. Yeah, though the odds of that, I think, are pretty high, at least if uh, the stories that we read here are, are, are you know, a real sample. <laughs> And yeah, there are, I, way f- there are way fewer people just falling through floorboards than there are getting killed by cults, you know? I, and I think the floorboards being weak is really what gets you in the end of, of investigating these houses. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly what I learned in Scooby-Doo, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do get another literary allusion here. Uh, Stephroy dies at a place called Waitley, which is the name of the family in the Dunwich Horror, to which this story owes just a, a tremendous amount. Very cool nod to that uh, real masterpiece piece there. So yeah, this here at the end, we get the the revelation about what has actually been going on secretly behind the scenes. The, you know, the, this is really the story of uh, the Lich version of H.P. Lovecraft. And, you know, it turns out we've just been getting that story from the perspective of Leverett, the, the illustrator. And now we've had some of it at least sort of explained to us, revealed perhaps at least is the, the way to think about it. And I have loads of questions about the speculative stuff that is happening here, right? These uh, these rituals, the secret history, the immortality, the cosmic horror elements that suddenly show up here in chapter nine. So I want to just jump right into the discussion, Brandon, but I actually want to push that to the side for now and actually just talk about Carl Edward Wagner himself. Do you have any experience with with Wagner? Have you read him before? So this is the first Carl Edward Wagner story I've read. I looked him up uh, like I did also with Robert Aikman. And uh, I've been I've been waiting for the right time to reveal this, but there's this terrible 
show that was made in like the late nineties or early two thousands that grew out of like the grunge industrial scene called the hunger trying to be uh, like a horror anthology show. So it turns out Carl Edward Wagner has a story on one of those uh, episodes and uh, Robert Aikman has like the first two or, or something like that. So it's kind of weird. Uh, but that's, that's all I know about him. This is the first story I've read by him. I'm not recommending the hunger by the way, but maybe I am a little bit, I don't know. It's hard to say. Well, I would like to check it out. So that sounds like a fun thing. We could go do some bonus episode on it some, at some point, because that sounds awesome to me. But yeah, I, I don't know Wagner very well either. I have read one of his stories. Uh, Wagner uh, wrote a, a whole series of stories, I think about two dozen of them uh, in the, the sword and sorcery genre about a, a hero named Kane. Uh, I've read one of them and, and really quite enjoyed it. Uh, and in fact, uh, as we are recording this, our Patreon supporters right now are voting Voting on a theme for us to do five or six episodes on in the the next year. Sword and Sorcery is on the ballot. I haven't checked to see how people have been voting, and I guess even people on Patreon who will get this early will get it late enough that me saying this won't influence the voting, I don't think. But uh, one of the things I have been looking forward to, if Sword and Sorcery wins, is actually getting to uh, take a look at, at at least one of those other Kane stories, though even at that point, people would have to vote on which stories we're going to cover. So I don't know. But I read this story out of this very cool anthology called, well, the Sword and Sorcery Anthology that's edited by uh, David G. Hartwell and, and Jacob Wiseman. It's got an introduction by David Drake, including a story by David Drake. And then it's got, you know, all the big names, Howard and Moorcock and uh, so on, George R. R. Martin there, but also some people who've really been part of, you know, our lives here on Elder Sign, also the network. I mean, Gene Wolfe has a story in here. Uh, Michael Swanwick has a story in here. Caitlin R. Kiernan. I mean, it's a great collection. So um, I just for fun, actually, had pulled this off the shelf last night to read this Wagner story, again, uh, Undertow, this Kane story. And it's super fun. So I hope we get a chance to do more Wagner in the future. And I'm glad that we got this commission that had us do this one, at least. Yeah, I loved this story. It is something I wish I could have written, which, you know, I I don't say a lot on, on the network. There's a lot of stories I, I learned from, but this story is so right up my alley that, uh, you know, it's worth stealing from, <laughs> which is maybe the highest compliment <laughs> I, can, I can pay his story. Well, all right, let's transition into talking about the story. I, I, I said that I wanted to talk about the nightmares. I'll make that secondary because I think that the big thing here really is this this cult, right? And I'm super interested in this cult, in particular, the the secret history of it and also the way immortality functions. And I wonder, Brandon, if we can try to make some sense of the the timeline here, right? Because we're, we're given to understand that there's this megalithic civilization that has established itself in North America from the old world around 1800 BC, 1900 BC, something like that. How do you think that actually happened? Like, what is it that Wagner envisions here? It's a really good question. I mean, prehistoric North America is such like a, fa a fascinating concept. Of course, there's this like... The word colonial here is constantly sort of present in this text as the real backdrop of what is going on in this story. And so 
Wagner seems to be making a point that this, you know, religion, at least as we pointed out, is not original to the continent. Uh, we could maybe have like a Pangea type of thing going on the land bridge from Russia to Alaska. I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, it's not, he's not looking at um, the indigenous population as, as, as having this religion, but that people have come from somewhere and um, that they brought this with them, the the megalithic worship, you know, that we see in like Druids or uh, he points out Greece and the Mediterranean in particular. So how they got here, ships, Pangea, I don't know, uh, something along those lines, perhaps, though. Yeah, not Pangea, because that's uh, uh, hundreds of millions of years before humans existed. <laughs> and, uh, Anytime you say P- BC, it could be Pangea, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I don't believe that uh, we're talking about the, uh, the the land bridge across the Bering Sea or something like that. Uh, I, I do suspect that we're this is an Atlantic migration of of some sort. But I, you know, for this to work, and and look, this is also something that Lovecraft posits in in some of his stories, including the Dunwich Horror, the Wagner spelling it out more here. Uh, Also the festival, which we have covered on the show. I mean, I just really want to read the novelization of this, of this migration. There must be some kind of violence. I mean, it's a, you know, a migration, but it is also an invasion, right? Because there are people living in upstate New York in 1800 BC who now must be displaced in, in some way, displaced, enslaved, Something horrible has happened to the actual indigenous Americans through this invasive migration from uh, Northwest Europe or uh, the Levant of the Mediterranean. I mean, it's not even really hyper-specific about where where people have come from, Uh, but I would like to know more about that, and I wish we got more details about it, but that we don't get. And then, of course, the other question that I have here is, is how long did this civilization actually survive, right? It's it's hidden to us now at this point. It's kind of a secret that only a few people know about, even though the, the ruins are there, I guess, for people to find. But still, at some point between 2000 BC, 1800 BC or so, and the 17th century, when you know, I don't know, the pilgrims, I guess, start showing up in this part of the world, this megalithic old world civilization is gone and indigenous Americans are are now back in this part of the world. So at what point do you think that happened? That's such a good question because as we talked about in the first chapter, Wagner is careful to point out the way nature overtakes the colonial farmhouse, which would have been maybe 200 years old, may, you know, something, maybe even a hundred years old, how quickly uh, nature reclaims these types of properties and including the house. And then again, shows us the way nature has even destroyed any evidence of this place existing. So to, to wonder or to ask the question of how long this civilization existed, um, why the religion outlasts the length of the civilization, its discovery by colonial alchemists. Uh, all of this is really curious to me because I don't think it's really spelled out in the text, but we do get this time period, 1700 to 2000 BC. That might be just a little bit of an explanation of the period of the Bronze Age that uh, Dr. Strefoy has in mind, but it could also be what he's thinking of as the length, uh, the duration of this 
megalithic type of civilization. Uh, it lasted a period of about 300 years, maybe. Yes, I took that that window there to be Sephiroid describing what he means by megalithic, like when when that period of megalithic construction was active in in the old world. Those dates aren't quite right there, but they 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 work well enough. But but your your understanding of that might also be right there. I had the feeling like this is a civilization that lasted for a very long time and then came to some real kind of cataclysmic collapse here. And, and maybe it's just because we recently covered the doom that came to Sarnath, which feels kind of related <laughs> to, to this idea here, this kind of secret proto-history of, of the Earth. I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but it has that same feel to it, except that here, you know, the interest is less in the secret history and more in the early modern alchemists who learn, you know, forbidden lore from the discovery of this this prehistoric civilization. There's also Althal, you know, who 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 might be proselytizing. He might be an undead man who is uh, crawling out of basement tunnels and and rather than scaring the people who live in the house, enticing them to join his uh, religion, where you can live forever, but you'll be maybe a skeleton or something like that. Yeah, he's he's basically Santa Claus, except that he he comes up through the cellar instead of down through the chimney. But he's got presents for he's you. Got he presents, yeah. He Immortality. You know, what could be better? <laughs> yeah. So that's my next question, actually, Brandon. Is who is in this cult? And I think really one of the things I mean here is how many of them are four thousand years old, like Althal is, or is he is he the only one this old? I think he's the only one this old. And then there might be others that are. Uh, acolytes of his that he's picked out over the ages. But what I really love about Althol and his acolytes is just the visual of people uh, crawling out through tunnels in, in basements. I would just, it's so visually horrifying, especially in tattered clothes, these skeletal types of bodies, you know, liches. Uh, I think it's it could be, just be the most effective image if this were turned into a turned into a, a film of a kind. Oh, yeah. And I, I would want a kind of uh, prologue here where we actually see Althol discovered by colonial alchemists or colonial people who then turn into alchemists. Because I think that's my sense. I think that most of the members of this cult are actually from like the 18th century, from the First Great Awakening, and that Allard is probably the most recent person who's who's joined this. I think so, because he can hide his rot uh, with with makeup, uh, and that that's uh, you know he's got to be the one who can go out into the world. He's the proselytizer, perhaps at the the agent of the cult in in the world. Yeah. So how do you think that Allard got involved in the cult then? And and you invoked earlier, Brandon, right? The idea of Lovecraft being a character in other people's weird fiction stories. And, and that is what's happening here. And one of the, the frequent ways that this is done is to imagine that what Lovecraft was writing was not fiction. He was writing true accounts of his own adventures or at least of his research. And so, you know, that might be one way, I guess, that we could see Allard getting involved is that these these stories actually are secondary to who he is, that he was always interested in the the alchemy, interested in the magic, and that this was kind of his real purpose. But I think the other thing might actually be that it's the fact that he's writing about these things without really being involved in it, knowing anything about it, made him seem like he would be a good candidate for recruitment. Uh, and I wonder which, if, if either, I guess, of those you think it is. So Allard is clearly the the Lovecraft, right? Like the way people 
you're describing who are trying to tell these stories envision Lovecraft as like, you know, he might be a member of the cult. He might be trying to stem the tide of the old ones, or he might join them, be trying to join them himself. Uh, to me, Leverett is the real Lovecraft stand in in this story. And so maybe what Wagner has done is kind of split these ideas of Lovecraft uh, into two people and um, have kind of the more humanized Lovecraftian type of person, the person who's kind of doing the fictional work, but it's maybe haunted on some level, um, portray the secret world just beyond ours that, that they, they just had this little brush with and then have this other version of this Lovecraft stand in that knows the truth of this world be the, the villain of the piece. And I, maybe that's why this lands so well is because, uh, you have the the villain of the piece be this other version of Lovecraft that people like to imagine as being actually involved with the old ones, knowing the real truth and, uh, you know, inviting them into our world through his fictional labors. Um, and so, yeah, I wonder, I think, I think that this version, this Allard character uh, came across Al Gol, uh, found a way. He's clearly very wealthy. He's lived on, you know, like a Highlander through many generations, <laughs> uh, the TV series, to be clear, and has amassed a kind of fortune and maybe lives. He clearly lives in one of these houses that's built atop one of these Mycenaean foundations. And so uh, he's fully uh, a member of the cult and maybe a recent convert and found a way uh, to not live off of potted meat and uh, maybe enrich himself by 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 joining the, the people he's writing about. Yeah, I think that's my sense of it as well. I think that he started out just writing stories and then got recruited for for some reason because of the the nature of those stories. Though the why that is 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 totally unclear. I do want to point out one more allusion to Lovecraft's work that is going on here, kind of on the macro level, which is that all of this the the colonial alchemist, the uh, person pre pretending to be the descendant of himself, uh, in in a kind of dis- and wearing a kind of disguise. All of that is uh, an homage to the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is actually one of the longest things that Lovecraft has written. It's uh, uh, something we've had on the ballot before to do bonus series on and has, hasn't has quite come up yet. But this story, Sticks, really made me want to go do a deep bonus series on that. So I hope we'll get a chance to do that someday. But uh, let's shift gears here and talk about the actual like weird elements here, the the supernatural elements, I mean, the magic and the cosmic horror. What do you think actually are the great old ones in this story? And and you know, why do they need helpers? That's always the the question about God, isn't it? <laughs> like, <laughs> if if he's all powerful or if they're all powerful or however you you imagine this this question, uh, why do they need us at all? I mean, and that that's the question behind cosmic horror itself is if they don't need us, if we're dispensable, we're really at their mercy. We're really at their mercy. What Wagner does with this story, I think, is to play on the desire for immortality and the way that that is a, a kind of a corrupting desire. And so it's not really about what the old ones need. It's not that that he focuses on. He focuses on the desire to live forever and how those people who desire that 
need the old ones to do that, who they are full of resentment. They wish to enslave humanity and they want the dead to rule rather than the living. And so it's really this inversion, uh, this perversion of life that, uh, leads to kind of this perverse need for God and allows you to cross all these taboos, you know, not like human sacrifice for one, but also living after you're dead, uh, which is a pretty big one. I don't think anyone's really quite cracked that. And so that's part of Wagner's genius here is to rather than maybe focus on the question of why do the old gods need us? Obviously, they want to inhabit Earth. Earth is a great place. It's so great that I, will, I don't want to die. I want to live forever. Or if I do die, I want to rule over Earth. Earth, and I should be allowed to rule because I'm immortal, right? So it's, I think, all of that stuff that's rolled up into it uh, that I think Wagner does so well that inverts the typical kind of question that that you asked. I think Allard and, and Alphil and everyone else in this cult are probably deluding themselves. You know, they, they don't actually know, I don't think very well, what the great old ones themselves really are. They just assume that when they show up again, that, you know, when they're unleashed on the planet again, that they will, you know, conquer the planet and then will use the members of this cult as their deputies to rule over everyone <laughs> right. else. I, I don't know that they've got that in like a contract, you know? So, maybe just just leave them where they are right and so like there's a whole story you know after this one uh that could be written about trying to prevent exactly this from happening and i think you know but what does happen on the next page, I think, is that uh, because we're all so excited for recently discovered new Lovecraft stories, uh, and we're all reading them at the same time, we are going to unwittingly uh, uh, release the uh, the agents of our own destruction and, and possible enslavement here as well. But uh, still, I'm going to buy the book if it shows up. If there is new, if there's new Lovecraft, I'm going to buy that book. This is not a cautionary tale that works for me. No, somehow it's the exact plot of Cabin in the Woods, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. That's right. Yeah. As you said, this story, I think, is super influential. We can we can see uh, the, the tendrils of its DNA. That's not a real metaphor, but I'm using it anyway, uh, all, all over the place in our own contemporary pop culture, for sure. I guess the, the question I was really trying to ask there, Brandon, is are they space aliens? Are they in another dimension? You know, what are the sticks for? How do they work? You know, I don't think we can really answer any of those questions. I don't think they're really in the text. But some Something that did really interest me here is that we're told that the reason they really even need Leverett at all is that Alphol's brain has been damaged by Leverett in the attack. And what damaged him was not the fact of the of, of being hit on the head. It was because he was hit on the head with iron. Iron damaged his brain. And we're also told that Alphol fled iron, that Alphol was one of the people who came with this migration somehow maybe he was even the only person actually who came from the old world and there's there's you know something else going on with these megalithic remains this megalithic civilization but that he fled iron and this is fairy lore Fa this is standard fairy lore fairies don't like iron and so i just found that a really strange note i i you know there's also the uh stone layout, which is, you know, evocative of uh, fairy circles. These stick lattices themselves have this kind of sense of passage into another world. I really do get the sense that the attack on Althol in chapter one led to the flooding, that somehow Althol's existence was 
protecting the land in some way in, in, in that he was somehow able to stop the flooding that would naturally occur because it all took place in 1942 to 1946. It's not a coincidence, I'm sure, that after this ghoul is struck on the head with an iron pan uh, that the, the valley floods, though maybe it is. But I think that Wagner is playing with this kind of dream logic, you know, that that really gets us to these imaginative places that he doesn't need to spell out. And we've kind of been dancing around that as a, as a technique that he's able to somehow sprinkle in the exact amount of detail that we need to make these uh, imaginative connections uh, outside of the text that really deepen our relationship with the text. And it's, it's a hell of a technique. Yeah. I had this feeling as well that Alpha was in, in, exerting some kind of supernatural control over his his local area and that maybe that's all of these megalithic sites kind of started out that way and that there there is something here about you know kind of sorcery that is wrapped up in this this fairy lore and maybe the great old ones are also you know part of fairy lore that they they do come from some other dimension have been here before have been driven away i mean there are all sorts of of ways that we could elaborate on the the secret history of this uh bronze age megalithic civilization here in in New England and and upstate New York that I would just love to do but you're right Wagner intentionally doesn't give us enough to connect all the dots he gives us enough to feel like there are connections and to to yearn for them and and that is really the way to do it you know when i get done reading a story like this i i want to I want to see the blueprints, right? That's what I want to see. But what I really want is just the joy of trying to work it out for myself. I wouldn't actually like the story nearly as much if it were the story of the blueprints. It's an exact. It's an excellent example of uh, of like writing as a magic trick, where the, the the author knows how the illusion is done, and the reader is left mystified. And I I just it's my favorite type of writing that exists. Okay, last thing that I want to talk about, Brandon, before we close out this episode are the nightmares. This is just a kind of a light question here, which is just that I, I wasn't sure if Leverett's nightmares were supernatural. Like, was he receiving these nightmares from Althol or the great old ones or something like that? Or were these just regular dreams? Was this just his, his trauma manifesting? I mean, we kind of skirted around the question, or maybe we didn't, about you know what exactly these these stick lattices are. You know whether they're alien or extra dimensional or something like that. I mean, the text says they're both alien and extra dimensional, which I guess if you're going to suggest something is one of those things, you should probably do both. But well, I think um, I think this is the use of alien the way that everyone before the 1950s used the word alien, which just means foreign. Like yeah, we think yeah. alien means space alien, but it, it does not. We But we have decided as a society in the last 70 years to drop putting the word space in front of it, which is super confusing. <laughs> but no, I think it just means foreign. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And I think I think you're 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 dead on there because I think it really is meant to be extra dimensional. And so Colin is our character who really is meant to suggest to us what it would mean to have thousands of people looking and study looking at and studying these images uh, and being super into them and what that what that might do to the mind but then also what it might do collectively uh, and it certainly suggests that you know if, if thousands of people are going to be, really studying these lattices to try to to 
get a grip on what they might mean. You know, we see in that first nightmare that what begins to happen to Colin is he starts to believe that there's language there, that if he just pays more attention to them, he can uncover the meaning. And, you know, we talked about that as kind of Wagner's technique in the story in general is just enough to suggest connections and meaning. And when the mind fixates on that, it really goes nuts. Uh, and so that's what happens to Colin. His mind begins to fixate on these images because he's really deeply invested in them as an artist and has been for ages. And so, yeah, I think these dreams are supernatural. I think the old ones or whomever are trying to break through, break that barrier, uh, between our reality and theirs and do it through dreams. Um, but I'm not sure how Colin ends up with a, a, a half devoured human heart in his hand. I don't know how that, I don't know how that, that space is crossed. Right. I mean, there's a whole story there about how he went out and I don't know, dug up a grave, murdered somebody to eat them. Like it does feel like he's actually starting to become lichified himself. And it also very much seems like at the end of the story, he is being forcibly welcomed into the the cult. And I think that these dreams are part of the the mechanism for it. And I, I suspect, I imagine that this is also how Allard got introduced to the cult as well from through the same way through through being too engaged with your weird fiction storytelling and uh and 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 that doesn't lead to to anything healthy here i think is perhaps one of the morals of the story as well yeah keeping an ironic distance can be can be life-saving uh from time to time yeah, I, I, that, that, that's our advice to listeners, I guess. And uh, <laughs> if we are dispensing uh, uh, poorly thought out and uh, half-hearted advice, I think that's a signal that uh, it's time to wrap this episode up. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This was so awesome. I really loved this story. Like, it was, it's right up my alley, as I've said so many times. So thank you so much to our Patreon supporter who commissioned this. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't checked us out, uh, beyond this episode, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. We really hope that you'll look at some of the other podcasts that we uh, do on the network. Yes, thank you again so much for commissioning this episode. I've, I've been wanting to read Wagner on the show for a long time. Now we've done it, and I, I hope this will inspire listeners to uh, uh, want to, to nominate him, get him on the, the ballot uh, in, in, in more ways in the future. I think that will be super fun. And we'll have that to look forward to. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell.